Here began a mystery so baffling that even now, police, scientists, the coroner, have been unable to say why or by what means this man and this woman died. Ad-free episodes and more available at patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tapes from the Dark Side contains descriptions of violence and sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. You know why we're here. To try and figure out what happened to Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Margaret Chandler. Let's get right to it. First, we have to tie up any remaining loose ends around the more fringe ideas before we can take a good hard look at the two theories I think can best explain what happened. The first of the fringe theories that I believe we can shut the door on is an LSD overdose. The 1990s saw a renewed interest in this theory, and even those in the scientific community decided it was an open and shut case of LSD overdose. There were developments in how to test for LSD, and they decided to take one more shot at testing the few remaining tissue samples for the chemical. In 1994, the New South Wales Institute of Forensic Medicine sent small tissue samples to the United States to be tested using a new technique called radioimmunoassay. But there was a caveat. These samples had been preserved in a chemical called formalin, which tends to interfere with toxicological analysis because it degrades molecules and alters acidity levels. The scientists testing the samples had to freeze these in small amounts to evaporate the formalin, and it wasn't until two years later, in 96, that the first round of testing returned. A positive hit for LSD. The exact quantity of the drug wasn't clear, but it was an exciting breakthrough. It appeared that perhaps the mystery was solved. But then another round of more precise testing was conducted, and this is when the LSD theory fell apart. These more sensitive tests all came back negative. The first one was a false positive, 
It was nearly certain now that Bogle and Margaret hadn't ingested any LSD on that night, let alone overdosed on it. And then there was the espionage theory, perhaps too sensational for the papers to give up on without a fight. The Daily Mirror claimed as recently as 1984 that Bogle not only worked for the ASIO, but had also been a double agent. This is an incredibly deep rabbit hole, and our researcher Gemma, myself, and Peter Butt have all read and considered the possibility of some kind of government assassination. And not only are the facts lacking, but there was never truly a single solitary piece of material evidence that supported this theory. I wouldn't go so far to say that it can be 100% discounted, but the facts as we know them today simply do not point us in this direction. Let's not forget about Raymond Chalice, the one-armed man. Here, again, no evidence suggests that he had been involved. Besides for being at the river to peep on some unsuspecting lovers, there was nothing connecting Raymond to the deaths. What about the man that Raymond said he saw come up out of the bushes? The man he described as broad-shouldered and with yellow or brownish hair, long at the back and wearing a t-shirt. Well, as for that lead, there was no development. And besides for Raymond's statement, no one else had seen that man. Now, let's get to a theory that seemed to hold weight. One that a particular Sydney resident had been conducting their own extensive research into. They hadn't come up with a new theory, but instead revisited one, which science and detectives had previously eliminated. Who was this sleuth who had fit the pieces of a seemingly impossible puzzle together for the first time? Well, you've heard us mention his name a number of times throughout this season. The one and only Peter Butt, the Australian documentary filmmaker who wrote the two books that we have referenced over and over again in this case. What sets Peter's research apart is that he went back to basics, back to the alleged crime scene, to interview the one witness that nearly everyone else had ignored, and that is Lane Cove River. Peter set out to research the environmental history of the river and surrounding area to see what it could tell us. Now, before we dive into that, I do want to note that we reached out to Peter to see if he would give us an interview but he is currently in the process of producing his own podcast on the case. There is no firm date yet, but go check it out because it's sure to be an excellent podcast. As we have hinted at, Peter returned to the hydrogen sulfide poisoning theory. The main thing that had ruled it out was the idea that there was no source of this gas anywhere near the river. But after looking at the area's history, Mr. Peter Butt realized this was wholly incorrect. The ecosystem of Lane Cove River is such that mangrove trees grow abundantly along the riverbanks, and mangroves emit a range of gases during the night, which include hydrogen sulfide. The first obvious question is, could these trees have emitted gas levels high enough to result in human death? The research was inconclusive, so Peter dug deeper, looking at the historical local government records to see if there was any documentation regarding environmental events. That is when he hit on a wealth of information in the local library. A number of archived correspondence between the residents who lived near the river in the 1940s and the local government. 
They complained in these written statements about a revolting smell coming from the river, a kind of rotten egg smell. It resulted in paint peeling off the inside of their homes. Their children were experiencing nausea and breathing difficulties. The council had alerted the state government that the situation was so dire that it might require the evacuation of these residents. In 1948, a maritime scientist was designated to test the river and surrounding area over a 12-month period. And that's when it was found that the smell was coming from the river itself. So how did Lane Cove National Park, which includes Lane Cove River, one of the most picturesque spots in Sydney, become what is, for all intents and purposes, a dump? Well, starting back in the 1920s, it was a popular recreation spot. While the locals and tourists enjoyed the area for its boating, fishing, and picnicking, industrialization began to take hold. Large businesses came to town. Manufacturing began to establish factories on sites. And in the absence of any large-scale sewage system, businesses gave it no second thought for their factories and mills to use this pristine, beautiful river as a dumping ground for industrial waste. All the way back in the 1890s, a factory upstream that produced flour and starch had been dumping its sulfur-based waste into the river. Just that one factory estimated half a ton of waste every week. And so it was for the next 40 years until in the 1930s, a sewage line was finally constructed underneath the river. But the water and underlying mud of the riverbed was so polluted from 40 years of neglect that most of the heavy damage had been done. The naturally occurring tides began to have trouble flushing out the air and water pollution, and the waste became even more concentrated. When the tide came in, so did the pollutants. Scores of dead fish were found floating on the surface of the river amongst piles of weeds. Black mud in a noxious smell from the riverbed was a common sight and smell. And then one day in the 1948 study, the scientist researcher noticed something particularly troubling. One day while in the water, the river produced what he could only describe as a form of explosion from the depths. Mud samples that were collected were found to contain heavy concentrations of hydrogen sulfide. These concentrations were not isolated to one single spot, but along a five-kilometer stretch. The findings confirmed what the public already knew. Lane Cove River was no longer the jewel of the North Shore, but a stagnant, murky, and now dangerous environmental hazard. Following this report, the factories near the river were instructed to divert their waste via the sewer system which ran under the riverbed. But during heavy rains, the overflow valve opened and the waste would gush straight into the river. If all this wasn't convincing enough, another bombshell dropped. The sanitized inquest led by J.J. Looms had suppressed another piece of vital information. A few lines that had been struck in from the pathology report. And while these lines were brief, they were extremely vital to the case at hand. These notes showed that fresh semen was found on Bogle's penis and inside his jacket, confirming that sexual activity had definitively taken place between Bogle and Margaret. Not only that, but this key piece of information had implications for narrowing down the cause and time of death. 
This evidence gave strong support to the theory that Bogle and Margaret were perfectly well when they first arrived at the river and were rapidly overcome by something at toxic levels during their amorous encounter. As part of his research, Peter spoke to all the surviving investigators, including the original toxicologist. Embarrassingly enough, it was revealed that the toxicologist was also unaware of the semen evidence. In an effort to preserve the moral integrity of his community, it seems that J.J. Looms had sabotaged his own inquest. The toxicologist said that the evidence would have prevented him from wasting time going down numerous other rabbit holes. It was also found that the British Institute of Forensic Medicine had looked into the post-mortem reports and confirmed that Bogle and Margaret had been seemingly poisoned by some kind of gas. The toxicologist also reported that after he had this information, he retrospectively remembered there was an unusual hue to the color of some of the blood of the victims. The hue of blood can be notoriously hard to identify, and the greenish-blue-purple tint is something that, simply put, if you're not specifically looking for it, you might not see it. Bogle and Margaret had been found in one of the alcoves near the river, a small depression where the ground had sunk down. Hydrogen sulfide expert Dr. Thomas Milby stated that the hydrogen sulfide gas is actually heavier than air, hence it sinks to ground level instead of floating up near our heads. A breeze will help dissipate the gas, as will sunlight, but when the air is cool, calm, and still, as it most likely was around 4 or 5 a.m., it accumulates close to the ground. So let's put this theory to the timeline test. It's 4.15 a.m. on New Year's Day, 1963. The Nash party is winding down. Bogle and Margaret leave the party together. Only minutes earlier, Jeffrey had driven off heading back towards Darlington. Driving along the Pacific Highway, Bogle turns right onto Fuller Road in another couple of kilometers to Fuller's Bridge, finally stopping the car at an informal car park by Lane Cove River. Before the pair walked away from the car, under Fuller's Bridge and down to the river, Bogle took a piece of carpet out from the trunk that he had set aside for such occasions. Bogle and Margaret walked along a bush track for about 90 meters, then veered off the track another 20 meters towards the river. Down on a riverbed, Bogle laid the carpet atop the mud to protect their clothing. It was believed that Margaret removed her shoes and underwear. Bogle removed his trousers, underwear, and jacket. Intercourse took place, and Bogle likely removed his penis from her vagina before ejaculating. Either just before or at this exact same time, there was an eruption of hydrogen sulfide gas from the river bottom. This gas traveled over the edge of the river and accumulated at ground level, seeking out any hollows on the exposed riverbed, such as the one where Bogle and Margaret lay unaware. Neither would have noticed the revolting smell of rotten eggs because the lethal level of hydrogen sulfide gas would have been enough to immediately paralyze their olfactory nerves. They would have been hit with a sudden wave of nausea and then lurched to their feet before stumbling in opposite directions, vomiting and defecating all the while. As the oxygen in their brain was depleted, they would have been desperately gasping for air as they scrambled up the riverbank. There was no time or thought of readjusting their clothing. 
Margaret nearly cleared the riverbank, but finally slipped and fell back down the slope, landing on her back and possibly resulting in the small abrasion on her nose. Eventually, both would have collapsed unconscious from the lack of oxygen before dying shortly thereafter. But remember when police arrived on scene, both Margaret and Bogle's bodies were covered. Margaret with a flattened piece of cardboard, and Bogle with the rug from his trunk, and then his folded pair of trousers neatly placed on top of him. We're able to answer how they might have passed away, but who covered the bodies? Remember Eddie Bautiste from earlier this season, the morally conservative dog trainer who also worked as a butcher. The same Eddie Bautiste who also had an aversion to the sight of human flesh. There simply isn't enough circumstantial evidence to convince us that Eddie was involved. He might have been in that area on that day, but it seemed hard to believe such a conservative man would meddle with dead bodies without calling the police. But as it turns out, there were two pieces of crucial evidence pointing directly to Eddie being the one to have covered the bodies. Now, I have to warn you, this story is a bit convoluted, so bear with me. A woman came forward to talk with Peter Butt after she heard he was investigating the case. She was only 11 years old back in 1963, but on New Year's Day, she had been playing in a bushland adjoining a residential area, some five miles away from Lane Cove River. And that's when this girl came across a woman's white handbag. Being somewhat curious, as 11-year-olds are apt to be, she brought the bag home. And inside, among other personal items, were medication with Margaret Chandler's name on them. When the girl presented the handbag to her mother, there was immediate panic. No one wants to unnecessarily involve themselves in a murder case, and her mother threw the bag and its contents into the garbage, never to be seen again. It does seem a little bit of a drastic thing to do, but her daughter, who is now an adult, explains, quote, Because my mother had four young children to fend for and her sailor husband was overseas, Mom decided she didn't want her family caught up in a murder case that was front-page news. An 11-year-old had found the deceased Margaret Chandler's purse three miles from Lane Cove River. The million-dollar question, how did it get there in the first place? We'll explore right after this quick break. Skip the ads by going to patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Peter Butt once again lends his top-notch sleuthing skills to explain the puzzle of how Margaret Chandler's purse ended up three miles from the site of her death. From his book, quote, I made inquiries with an elderly couple living adjacent to the location where the children found the bag. They said back in 1963, an ex-boxer who worked at the local council tip lived in a house opposite the Stormwater Channel. His name had a very familiar ring to it, Bill Batiste, the same surname as that of the Greyhound trainer. It turns out that Bill Batiste was in fact Eddie's nephew, and more than that, he lived on a route that was in between Lane Cove River and Eddie's home. Just like with nearly every other strange detail in this case, we have more questions than answers. Why the hell would Eddie, a blue-collar worker with a good salary and no criminal record, mess around with dead bodies and then steal a woman's purse? And then, yet another breakthrough for Peter Butt. He was introduced to a 91-year-old man who had worked as a chief stipendary steward in the Greyhound racing scene in Sydney. He was tasked with keeping the notoriously dirty sport clean, This man claimed to have known Eddie extremely well, and Peter says that before he could even ask him about the purse in the Chandler Bogle case, this 91-year-old man volunteered the following information. Quote, One day while I was talking to Eddie on the phone, he told me, You know those two bodies down at Lane Cove River? Found them. Both dead. I said, How did you know? And he said, It was obvious, mate. I was walking the dogs when one of them must have heard a rustle in the bushes. Eddie told me his dog pulled him towards the river where he found the naked body of a woman. He said he was embarrassed about it and mentioned something about beer cartons, but he didn't say he covered her. He said, The bodies weren't right. You've no idea there was feces everywhere. This elderly man also relayed to Peter that it was his personal belief that Eddie was the type who would have been tempted to take the handbag for money. And then another detail that further confuses things. Wouldn't the police have been on the lookout for a missing handbag at the time? They weren't. And the reason being, if you recall from the very beginning of our tale, when Margaret and her husband, Jeffrey, set out for the New Year's Eve party, Margaret brought with her a change of footwear in case the high heels became a little much. And in doing so, she also brought two different purses to match the two different shoe styles. The second purse she left in the car, which returned with Jeffrey to his home the next day. And when police inquired about there being no handbag at the scene, Jeffrey said that she had left it in the car. Put quite simply, the police didn't know that there was a second handbag. If all this new information is a lot for us to process, then you can imagine what it must have been like for Jeffrey Chandler. After the publishing of his book, he went on to live a mostly normal life. And then decades later, Peter Butt showed up to request his participation in the 2006 documentary. Jeffrey Chandler seemed convinced about the hydrogen sulfide theory, but sadly, he passed away in mid-2009, and so he never got to hear the outcome of these follow-up investigations, and he never got to live to see another inquest into the death of his wife Margaret and his colleague Bogle. Here's my only um, concern is that, you know um, Occam's Razor? Yeah. Are you familiar with that? And this, go, this case just totally goes against that. Right, just, right. Yeah. But if, if you were going to bring this to me, or I think even most standard people, a guy who was 
said to have been having five affairs and his wife didn't know. They show up and they're showing signs of being poisoned. And then 50, 60 years later, they, they discover that might have been this river gas thing. But when you get into the details, the gas makes a lot more sense. I'm nearly convinced that was it. Look, it's not, it's, in, in this case, I think it's, it's the exception, not the rule. Um, because when I first started to, and not, not this year, but kind of in previous years, when you know, other, other theories have come out, it's just like, ah, oh, come on, really? Like that sounds, but when you get into the nuts and bolts of the science behind it, it yeah, actually it makes, makes sense. sense. Um, and I don't think it's a matter of trying to make the facts fit the theory, you know? Um, For what has been presented, I think it makes the most sense. Yeah. And I do think that death by hydrogen sulfide made the most sense at the time. But that was before I came across the writings of a man named Dr. Allender. Dr. William Allender was a forensic toxicologist and a medicinal chemist who worked with the New South Wales Police Forensic Unit until his retirement in 2018. He has served as an expert witness on a number of high-profile criminal cases in which poisoning was a factor, and he has written extensively on the subject of the Bogle-Chandler case. Curiously, he doesn't appear anywhere in Peter Butt's work, and I can only wonder why. Dr. Allender is a qualified expert in drugs and poisons with 30 years of professional experience. Not only that, but he claims to have tested the blood samples of none other than Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler. From a recorded interview with Dr. Allender, Certainly in the Bogle Chandler one was very early in my career, uh, which was very unusual. This one was surrounded with a whole heap of uh, like conspiracy theories and everything because uh, Dr. Bogle was actually uh, working on what they call maces, very similar to a magnetic version of, uh, of laces. It was considered that he, he might have been involved in some sort of, uh, you know, death ray weapons and this sort of thing. So wow. there's a, a lot of theories floating around, which were really quite crazy when I look back on them. From a published article written by Dr. Allender in May of 2020. It was in 1981. I was loading up screen human tissue, blood liver extracts and various other substances. And I had some vacant space in the carousel. I went into the cool room where they kept the samples, and I noticed the two samples, Bogle and Chandler. I decided to screen them. The blood samples were heavily hemolyzed, and I didn't expect much to come out of the screen, but I thought it was still worth testing them and included them in the GLC screen. The following morning, I checked the chromatograms, and apart from the usual suspects, the Bogle-Chandler samples were a surprise. I believe they actually overdosed on a drug known as Yoambine, which is actually an aphrodisiac. I'd say it's most likely it was an accidental death. I was only just starting out in toxicology at that time when I uh, screened the, you know, the victim's blood for, for various drugs, and this one came up. There was a late eluding peak which had Covat's indice corresponding to the drug Yohimbine. It was detected in both samples and confirmed on two chromatographic columns. This was very unusual for two corresponding deaths. 
Despite the apparent breakthrough in 1981, Dr. Allinger's findings were never confirmed. Again from the doctor. All that was needed now was a mass spectrum of the chromatographic peaks, and this would have been the clinching evidence. Unfortunately, this did not eventuate, as the laboratory was in turmoil, and I was subsequently transferred to the blood alcohol section. I would have liked to have taken it up further, but that's just how things turn out in life, I'm afraid. We must also consider the possibility of a false positive, a non-fatal dose even if they were taking Yohimbine, and the unlikely possibility of Yohimbine used in combination with a hydrogen sulfide blast. Or even, if we are to exhaust all possibilities, as we saw before with the blowfish theory, was Dr. Allinger perhaps stretching the truth to sell a book? To clarify, there is no evidence we have that Dr. Allinger has lied or would really have any motivation to lie. In my opinion, his testimony can be trusted, just as much of that of Peter Butts. In 1967, the director of forensic medicine in Hong Kong was investigating two deaths who exhibited remarkably similar characteristics as that of Dr. Bogle and Mrs. Chandler. And this couple had died after taking Yohimbine. According to the California Poison Control System, 238 cases of adverse reactions after Yohimbine consumption were identified between the years 2000 to 2006. The most common side effects were gastrointestinal distress, tachycardia, anxiety, agitation, and hypertension. In 1985, there was a case of a 16-year-old girl who experienced an acute dissociative reaction accompanied by weakness, paresthesia, incoordination, anxiety, headache, and chest pains after ingesting an aphrodisiac labeled yo-yo, which after later testing identified as yohimbine. Acute neurotoxic effects were reported in the case of a 37-year-old bodybuilder who presented with malaise, vomiting, loss of consciousness, and repeated seizures after ingesting 5 grams of yohimbine during a competition. In reading about yohimbine, I developed a curiosity of what I might experience if I tried the drug. You can order it online, and it is legal in the United States. But then I remembered that I have struggled with drug addiction in my past, and I began to realize this probably wouldn't be a good idea. So I turn to what I think is the next best thing, YouTube videos. Now, just as a warning, the people that you're about to hear from are not by any means experts. They're mainly jocks, fitness types, guys who ordered the drug online and recorded their reactions. Yohembine is a more advanced supplement. It comes from tree bark in Africa, and it comes with some pros and cons and some extra responsibility. You can get the jitters. I've heard of people getting anxiety from it, breaking out into sweats. This is one of the supplements that you're going to feel the effects pretty quick. So don't overdo it. Learn your body. See what works. I've been getting a lot of questions on Yohimbi. Now, Yohimbi is a vasodilator, which means it opens up the blood vessels and improves the circulatory system and increases blood flow. This is why it's often considered the natural Viagra. That's why I got rock hard erections all day long taking Yohimbi um, at a high dosage. Yohimbi seems to have a very um, unstable effect on blood pressure. It does increase nervousness and it will cause your thoughts to race. 
Uh, to be honest with you guys, uh, I feel like Yohimbi kind of feels like um, it's eating my brain. It can give you a lot of benefits, increase my creativity, uh, increase my social interactions, but it was a very unstable energy. I used to recommend Yohimbi to a lot of people, but I noticed most people with uh, sexual dysfunction who really want to use Yohimbi, they're older. And I would not recommend, like I just feel very uncomfortable even beginning to recommend Yohimbi to older folks simply because I don't feel like it's healthy. And this I took Yohimbi and things went south. The first week I was on it, I felt great. I like had energy in the gym, uh, increased libido. I wanted to go all the time. I, could, I literally felt like I could work out for like two hours and then not even be tired. I really only, I started off by taking a full pill. And then as I was you know, going more and more and more and more, I never really went over that one pill mark because I really didn't need to. In the third week, I noticed that I was having like these panic attacks and I could not figure out what was going on. I experienced increased heart, increased like resting heart rate. So like when I'm just sitting there, like it's just, you know, boom, 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 boom. Today I want to talk about uh, Yohimbine hydrochloride. This is this stuff right here. And uh, taking it pre-workout. Yeah, I mean, Yohimbine is funny because it's a compound that can make you really nauseous, but it can also offer a lot of uh, cool effects. You know, when you take it, it improves your blood flow, which can cause you to have like insane pumps in the gym. Your muscles will fill up with blood. You'll feel like your muscles are tight and like they're exploding. But if you're not careful and you take too much or you take too much with food, it can cause like really bad nausea. It can cause you to dry heave. It can cause you to vomit. So this is 2.5 milligrams and that's per pill. I'll take four, so I'll take like 10 milligrams. So like if you've never taken it before, you know, like just try one, see how you feel. I mean, it's better to take like barely anything and not feel anything than to like take way too much and like vomit and feel like you're like about to die. Because if you take too much Yohimbine, you literally feel like you're poisoned. It's like the worst feeling ever. There were rumors during the time that Dr. Bogle was suffering from sexual difficulties. Rumors strong enough to find whispers of them 50 years later. Of course, a rumor is not definitive evidence. Though if we were to consider it a possibility, it would be an admittedly disastrous development for someone of his proclivities. 38 years old, fading sexual prowess, but an enormous sexual appetite. Let's assume Bogle was taking Yohimbine. Wouldn't he know the proper dose? Well, this is actually an issue that is brought up on the NIH.gov website under an article for Yohimbine. According to a study from 2015, they found Yohimbine listed as an active ingredient among 49 different brands and in varying amounts. Even today, most Yohimbine products don't say how much they contain, and it can vary a lot among different suppliers. Another question we might have is that if Bogle was the one taking the drug to improve his performance, how would Margaret have died? One explanation has to do with the fact that Yohimbine was not necessarily marketed the same as a drug like Viagra. It wasn't just for getting an erection, but also thought of as an aphrodisiac and 
sometimes it still is marketed as such. According to Dr. Allender, quote, The drug is taken orally and arouses sexual excitement and increases blood flow and nerve impulses to the penis or vagina. And if the amount across different brands is not necessarily regulated, could it have contained much more Yohimbine than they thought? We earlier brought up a possibility of where it could have been obtained from. Being that many at the party were government researchers or otherwise some way related to the CSIRO, they had global connections and access to research equipment and most likely research chemicals as well. To add to this, Margaret was a nurse with access to medicine. And lastly, one more wrench to throw into the machine. Yohimbine was sometimes given to dogs by dog breeders as a way to encourage procreation. Remember that the Chandlers owned a number of dachshunds, and while I don't think they were necessarily dog breeders, they did enjoy taking their prized pups to dog shows. In fact, one of the remaining photographs of Margaret Chandler is her with three rather beautiful dachshund dogs in the back of a convertible. With Yohimbine on the table, there is now an elephant in the room. We can't fully discount the poisoning angle. Could someone at the party have slipped a fatal dose of Yohimbine into the drinks of Bogle and Margaret? And perhaps not even with the intentions of murder, but a practical joke gone horribly wrong. Who were the main suspects at the party? Firstly, there was the one who everyone had eyes on, Jeffrey Chandler. Then there was the anonymous woman with the facial rash who shared a midnight kiss with Bogle. And lastly, there was Ken Nash, one who we had evidence pulled a prank earlier that night by flipping off the porch light when he witnessed Bogle and Margaret in an embrace on his back lawn. From everything I've read, watched, and studied carefully over the past months, I still believe hydrogen sulfide poisoning is just as convincing of a theory as Yohimbine, and perhaps even more so. At the end of the day, I just can't seem to pick one over the other as being more plausible. They both have forensic evidence, hydrogen sulfide through the discolored blood and Yohimbine with the test by Dr. Allender. But these both have weaknesses when scrutinized. The initial failure to note the blood discoloration until hydrogen sulfide was suspected and the fact that there was no definitive testing done that showed a positive hit for hydrogen sulfide. With Yohimbine, Dr. Allender did perform a test, but there was only that one single test performed, and only one single person who witnessed that test being performed. There's one issue that I think I might call the swing issue, because depending on where your sensibilities land on this part of the story, I think it will inform you which theory you find most convincing. The Yohimbine poisoning angle relies on the drug's aphrodisiac effect to explain a piece of the puzzle that has confounded those closest to the case. Why had Bogle and Chandler stopped by the river to engage in intercourse when an empty house was waiting for them? Could it really be a possibility that they were so aroused by the Yohimbine concoction that they pulled over at the bridge instead of waiting the 20 or so minute drive home? That spot at the Lane Cove River from the Nash party was about a six minute drive. 
While on the other hand, Croydon, where Jeffrey and Margaret lived, was about a 22-minute drive from Chatswood. So it indeed was closer. From Dr. Allender. Why did the couple choose that location even with a roll of carpet to lie on, when a vacant bedroom was to be had with a comfortable bed which had been offered? It appeared their lust for each other had eclipsed other rationale, which was most likely drug-enhanced if not induced. We can't ignore that the hydrogen sulfide theory has its own way of explaining this peculiarity, the known fact that Dr. Bogle had a penchant for public lovemaking. His ex-lover, Mrs. Fowler, attested to this. It was the very reason he kept a cut-out piece of carpet in the trunk of his automobile. The yohimbine poisoning theory also suffers from one key thing, a lack of yohimbine. While Dr. Allender reports their blood tested positive for the substance, there was never any sign of the drug reported anywhere on Bogle or Margaret's persons. None was found in their homes or in the Nash residence. If it had been used, then there was either some kind of cover-up at play or the pill bottle had been discarded. One thing to consider is that we do know the police and coroner were not beyond censoring crucial information, especially when that information was of a sexual nature. It's not exactly a secret that Yohimbine was known as a aphrodisiac and also a male enhancement. Remember that the coroner chose to hide from the court and even the scientists testing the data that Bogle's semen was found at the crime scene. Could they also have made a bottle of so-called sex pills disappear? I think it's possible, but remember it's also just a theory. There's nothing we have found that can confirm this. And remember with poisoning, there's also the possibility of a prank gone wrong. The bark extract can be mixed with hot water to make a tea, and although the substance is bitter, I've read that when mixed with honey, it is actually surprisingly less noticeable. There's also the possibility of it being mixed with coffee, which we know was our unfortunate victim's last recorded drink, served to them by none other than Ken Nash and the same coffee that Jeffrey Chandler declined. A UK health website also warns that Yohimbine can sometimes cause hallucinations. And on that same website, it warns not to mix Yohimbine with foods containing tyramine. Tyramine is a colorless crystal amine that can be found in a number of foods. Two that are listed right off the bat are cheese and wine, two things you would commonly find at a party. When yohimbine is mixed with tyramine, it can potentially cause a dangerous and fatal reaction called hypertensive crisis. This is a severe increase in blood pressure that can lead to a stroke, heart attack, heart failure, kidney failure, and a number of other very dangerous and deadly side effects. If we're going to consider homicidal poisoning, what would even be the motive? First, we have Ken Nash, the host of the New Year's Eve party, who has no known motive to kill and no evidence to support such a claim. The same can be said for his wife, Ruth. Then we have the woman with the facial skin rash who, as I've said many times before, we don't even know her name, much less if she was directly involved in a potential murder. If she committed this crime, she pulled it off expertly, leaving not a shred of evidence. And lastly, our man of the hour, Jeffrey Chandler. The husband is always guilty, is a saying we hear a lot in true crime, 
but in this case, I personally believe Jeffrey to be the exception to the rule. Here are the facts that point to his innocence. One, he gave express permission for the affair to occur, even going so far as to offer up his house for the event to take place. Two, he had a girlfriend himself at the time, so the jealous husband theory falls short. Three, he was honest with police from the very start, and his story remained consistent throughout multiple interrogations, interviews, and writing an entire book. Four, he could not have interfered in the events that night once Margaret and Bogle had reached the river, as he had a rock-solid alibi. Five, there was never any material evidence found to implicate Jeffrey in the murders, no poison, pill bottles, etc. And lastly, six, the police were convinced of Jeffrey's guilt, and they still couldn't find a single shred of evidence to press charges. Jeffrey remained at the top of the police and public suspicion for not just the next decade, but indeed the remainder of his life. Under the public's thumb and that of the police, he had kids to raise, a life to live, and was without his once closest friend and companion. A sexual affair usually carries with it implications of excitement, mystery, and intrigue, though this particular situation stands in stark contrast to such romanticized notions. New Year's Day, 1963, just before the sun was getting ready to peak above the horizon, when it was still the darkest heart of nightfall. Midnight had come and gone, the New Year's Eve ball had dropped, guests had mostly emptied out, and the reality of the arranged affair between Margaret and Bogle began to seem more like an obligation than anything. Jeffrey's book about that night offers us a rare glimpse inside his mind. Quote, I was once asked if I hated Gil Bogle, if I did not feel rage and resentment, irrational as it would have been, because of what happened. I can only say no. Rage and resentment and regret I certainly felt, but directed against myself. I remember one morning Margaret and I had been laying in bed, talking. It must have been a Saturday. We talked about Gib and how much Margaret liked him. And in the intimacy of our conversation, we eventually came to the discussion of what Gib would be like as a lover. Margaret said she thought it would be an interesting experience, and from there it went on until this point was reached. I said, if you want to have Gib as a lover, if it would make you happy, you do it. To many people, that may seem an extraordinary remark, the very negation of marriage and the husband and wife relationship, but really it was not. And the reason it was not is we regarded one another as individuals, as people in their own right, as well as husband and wife. We loved and understood each other, and nothing was going to change that. Already there were Gareth and Sean, and there would be other children. Our life together would get richer and fuller, and nothing was ever going to part us. I know Margaret accepted this just as I did. Our future was there, and we never doubted it. Above all, I wanted Margaret to be happy, and I had long since rejected the sort of personal proprietary, physical jealousy that can be terribly destructive. But it wasn't as simple as this. There were other things, perhaps unacknowledged or unrecognized motives, and from this was to come tragedy. This talk, intimate, half-serious, half-speculative, took place about a week before New Year's Eve, by New Year's Eve, the intention had become firmer, and it was understood that Margaret just might want to spend some time with Gib alone that evening. 
After supper, Gib and Margaret and I sat in what I think Ken Nash called his den. After a while, Gib got up and left, and these were the crucial moments. It was at this time that I should have said to Margaret, Come on, we're going home. But I didn't. I could tell that Margaret was somewhat disenchanted, that what had started as a half-joke, possible experiment, gone stale. She had been saying she was interested in Gib, but really all she wanted was to get in the car and go home with me. And I think Gib felt the same way. But he was a man, and he had said he would take her home, and he certainly wasn't going to revert on this. It is hard to say now what my own feelings were. I suppose I was feeling a bit guilty myself, and my arrangement with Margaret had been made. I genuinely thought it would make Margaret happy to have the admiration and attention of another man. I thought all sorts of things. So I left the house. I went down the steps and down the garden path and sat in my car and smoked another cigarette. For as long as it took to smoke it, I would stay there. If Margaret wanted to change her mind, she could find me. Nothing happened. I could feel the dawn coming in the eastern distance. Most of the traffic noises from the railway line and the Pacific Highway had stopped. I started the car, drove to the highway. Thank you for tuning in. I have been your host, TZ. Keep an eye out for season five. It will be our first anthology season with a new case each episode. We already have some wild ones picked out for you, so stay subscribed in your podcast app so you'll get notified when it drops. If you want to get all our episodes early, ad-free, and in immaculate, uncompressed FLAC format, then join us on Patreon. Our Patreon supporters are truly the backbone of the podcast, so if you want to join the band today and become one of our loyal souls who truly has gone the extra mile to help the show, it takes less than one minute to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash tapes from the dark side. Thank you again to Peter Butt for his incredible research, without which this podcast simply would not have been possible. Keep an eye out for Peter's upcoming podcast on this case, and we'll be sure to notify you the second it's available. A link to Peter's books and his film will be in the show notes. Thank you to Dr. William Allender. His research was also critical in writing this episode. We'll have a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you to the podcast Renegade Radio, who interviewed Dr. Allender. We'll have a link to that podcast and that episode in the credits. I want to include a note about our writer this season, Gemma Harris. Season four was actually planned to be a new case each episode, as our next season will be, and I originally hired her to write a single episode. When I realized the Bogle Chandler case was far too complex for a single episode, I decided to move forward with it anyways. This means that I eventually expanded her one episode script that 
basically became an outline for a full five episode season. And she has been a great sport about handling my incessant questions that have probably been overwhelming and annoying at times. I admire her passion and dedication and have to say that working with her has been an adventure that I would go on again in a heartbeat. I'll also add that Gemma has been a strong proponent for the hydrogen sulfide theory, and I haven't yet talked to her in person about her take on the Yohimbine research I presented in this episode. She has graciously offered to do an after show with me, so if you're a Patreon member, keep an eye out for that. Currently around 2% of our subscribers are supporting us on Patreon. Your donations already make a huge difference for us. Thank you so much to everyone who helps. Our current top supporters are Brooke Shell, Christy Ramsher, Florida Gallagher, and Greg B. And the rest of our $9 Dark Star tier supporters are Fran, Caitlin Bridges, JC LeVay, James Harrington, Laura Huggins, Chelsea Perry, Hannah Jasinski, Candace Smith, Melanie Ochoa, Catherine Case, Bryson Percy, Key Sardee, Erica Walters, Gregory Andres, Chris Schombuck, Brooke Freshore, Sydney Valentine, Brad Dunshee, Jenny Blevins, Melanie Laffin, Brandon Hay, and Animus Nitsch. Thank you to the amazingly talented Augusta Trevor Roram. He honestly blows me away with every track he creates. And as you know, he made original music for this season. Check him out on SoundCloud, Spotify, and YouTube. Those links will be in the show notes. The same goes for 2600. He has allowed us to adapt one of his songs for our main theme, and his links will also be in the show notes. That's 2600. Stay tuned for a promo from a podcast called True Crime Island. True Crime Island features stories from around the world, hosted by none other than an iconic Australian named Cambo Ford. I give them the dark side seal of approval. Please go listen to him and subscribe. Here's a promo for their show. Thank you again, and I'll see you guys in the next season or on an after show. Do you get mad when listening to true crime? Well, so do I. If you want a weekly true crime podcast that says what you're thinking, then grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is Cambo from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, and maintain the rage with me. Visit truecrimeisland.com where you can download or stream each episode. Plus, there's links to iTunes and social media. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is True Crime Island. A dark side. It's all right. It's okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Cut. You got to bring passion mess. to it. A message. It's a message. This it's... is the, for the shits and for the birds. <laughs> this is for the birds. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus step into the world of power loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather. Now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.